Uh, let me invite you, if you have a Bible, uh, to turn to Genesis, the very beginning. Uh, we're going to be looking at Genesis 1 and 2. Mostly this morning, we'll spend a little bit of time uh, in some other verses. We'll put those up in the screen uh, as we go along. Uh, but this morning, as I said, we've, we've spent some time addressing questions about why we don't necessarily share our faith this morning. Uh, and for the next six weeks, we want to uh, prepare for the conversation. So I want to put yourself, uh, put myself in a probably a one-on-one conversation with a friend or a family member, or colleague, uh, somebody at work, and they've asked you, tell me about this Christian faith that you have. And so we want to spend this time kind of thinking about what exactly should we say. Now, not only will we be doing this on Sunday mornings, but in the month of April, and this is in your, in your uh, bulletin this morning, the month of April, we're going to have five Saturday night services. They're going to be at five o'clock every Saturday, beginning on Saturday, April the 1st, and going through, I think the 30th is actually the, the last Saturday of the month. And we'll be asking more questions along these lines. Uh, we'll be getting into questions like, is the Bible authoritative? Is it really the word of God? Uh, who is this Jesus? Who, what exactly did he claim to be? Is the resurrection really true or is it just a made up story? Those kinds of questions, because we want to give you as much opportunity as possible to uh, dig into these questions for yourself, for your own faith, but also that you may be able to share with others. So today, for our purposes to kind of launch into this conversation, if, if this was my first chance, if somebody sat down with me and said, now tell me about your faith, this is where I would begin. I want us to look at what the Bible says about the origin and the purpose of humanity. The origin and the purpose of humanity. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, and then chapter 2, verses 15 through 25. Hear the word of God. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And I'm skipping ahead to chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father, his mother, hold fast to his wife, 
and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, as we come from uh, busy weeks and hectic lives, uh, demands on our schedule uh, with work and with friends and obligations, Father, we thank you that you have ordained that we would have a day of rest. And in the context of that day of rest, that you would uh, set aside time for us to come and to be in relationship with you, to worship you, to praise you, to confess to you our need for you and our thanks for you, to acknowledge our sinfulness and our brokenness, and to again be reminded of the grace and the mercy that is ours in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you that you have loved us so well. Yet, Father, I know there are moments in each of our lives where we don't uh, feel that, we don't uh, experience it necessarily when we are going through hardships and difficulties. So, Father, I know in, in a room this size, uh, there are several of us, I'm sure this morning, that are not sensing your presence in, in our hearts and our minds. And, Father, I pray specifically for those friends that you would uh, reveal yourself to all of us, but in a significant way, to those in particular who are hurting, who maybe aren't sure uh, why we're here and, and whether or not there really is any purpose in life. Father, I pray that your words would be life-giving to our minds and to our souls and to our hearts. Father, I pray that you would forgive me for my sin. Don't let me be a hindrance to your word this morning. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would teach us, and we pray in your name. Amen. Well, here's where we're off to this morning. A sermon and a sentence is this. The, note, the, the, the phrase, created in the image of God, defines humanity several ways. It defines us as intellectual, spiritual and social. Therefore, it gives us a context for the purpose of our existence. So we're going all the way back to the very beginning, and we're kind of asking, how do we get here in the first place? Is there, is there any real reason about that that makes sense to us? And therefore, if it does, how does that inform uh, our existence? Or who are we and why are we here, if you want to really simplify it. We're going to look at this two different ways. The first way we're going to look at this is we're going to talk about the origin of humanity. We're going to see what the Bible has to say about that. And then we're going to look at, therefore, what does the Bible say about our purpose? And I want to remind all of us, I want to be reminded myself, that when we're sharing the reason for the hope that is in us, yes, we should talk anecdotally about our own experiences. We should explain the gospel, we should explain the message of the Bible, one of the ways by saying how it has impacted our lives. But what we have to understand fundamentally is what we are saying is that we have embraced the Bible as God's word. That's why one of those Saturday nights in April is going to be, is the Bible authoritative? Because we don't have time this morning to pull all that apart and really explain it, but we're going to do that in, in uh, April. Fundamentally, when we're talking to someone about our faith, we have to start, we must start with Scripture because therein lies the truth behind or supporting or undergirding our faith. So let's talk about the origin of humanity. Where do we come from, all right? The Bible says that God said, let us make man in our image, or another word, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. This is what theologians call the imago Dei. You were created in the image of God. I am an image bearer on some level of God's likeness. 
when you think about this, we, you have to understand that what God is saying here is that he's put his fingerprints on our personalities, on our intellect, on our emotions, on the way we look at the world. There's something God-like in every one of us. Now, you might say, well, I'm married to a person that hides it really well, <laughs> right? <laughs> or you might say, you know, I really know somebody that really exemplifies that God-likeness. I get it. Boy, I can really point that out. But every one of us would probably say, I, if that's true, I'd like to have some God-likeness in my life, and, and I probably need a little bit more. You probably don't want to be a friend or a spouse of the person who thinks they've got it all, right? But this is something that, that kind of stirs in our hearts and our emotions that we actually look something like God, like our Creator. And that's what the Scriptures are telling us, the Imago Dei. We're in the image and the likeness of, of God. Uh, we're in the grandparenting season of life now, and our daughter-in-law recently has been sending out pictures of our grandson, Cole, who is going to be a month old in, or excuse me, going to be a year old in March, but he has some serious eye problems, and they were just able to get him glasses this last month. You think about being a, a year old and having glasses, and we thought, you know, he'd pull them off and, and throw them away, but he can see stuff now. And he can't tell us what he can see because he can't yet talk. But you can see when you look at these pictures of him seeing things, it's like this, he's on this journey of amazing discovery that he hasn't seen before. So Cindy and I are looking at this picture yesterday. He comes on her little tablet or whatever, and she hands it to me. She says, who do you see in that picture? Now, that wasn't a pop quiz. I know what my grandson looks like, okay? Like, gee, I don't know. I've never seen that kid before, right? No, it, she was asking a different question. What was she asking? Who does he look like, right? I'm like, I see Nathan. I see his daddy in that picture. There are, other, there are other pictures where I'm like, there's his mama right there. But I see Nathan in that picture. What are we saying? We're saying that Cole is made in the image of Nathan and Liz, right? This is not a, a reality that is unusual to us or inexplicable to us. How are we image bearers? How we, we are image bearers. So what does that mean? That you are created and I am created in the likeness of God. Well, I think this passage gives us three ways that we are made in the likeness of God. The first one is this, that humanity is created uniquely intellectual, right? So God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Lord God took the man later on in chapter two, put him in the garden to work and keep it. God gave him instructions and gave him an assignment, right? And then whatever the man called every living creature that was its name. We see there the intellectual work of man, that, that man, that mankind, men and women, are thinking, rational beings. That we have a brain that is different intellectually than the rest of creation. You don't see any place else where God creates something and then begins a conversation with it, right? It's only here where God blesses them after he's created them, and then he begins a rational, intellectual conversation. That's where you and I are set apart from the rest of creation. God speaks to them knowing that they will understand him. God gives Adam an assignment to go and to work in the garden, knowing that he will fulfill that because he understands the directions. Later on, we see Adam exercising his intellect as all these animals pass by him and he has to come up with names like duck-billed platypus, right? That takes some intellectual exercise on the behalf of a person. We are cre created uniquely intellectual in that we have the ability to reason. We are not programmed, but we are thinking rational beings. So I'm in my office this morning 
early, and about 6.30, a woman comes walking across the lower parking lot. My office, look, I have a window that looks out on the lower parking lot. And there's a woman walking across the parking lot. And the same thing that happens every day, we have a dog park over here, right? So rain or snow, sunshine, doesn't matter. People use this dog park every day. And this woman's walking across the driveway, and she's got a little dog that's about yay high and about yay long. I'm not sure what kind it was, but it was a small dog. And she has him on a leash, right? And she's going to go to the dog park and take him off the leash and let him run around and be free for a little while. As they're walking across the parking lot, about every 15 or 20 steps, she stops. She stands still. And if the dog keeps moving, when it gets kind of where it's gone too far, she gives it just a little snap of the wrist. And the dog knows, oh, I've gone too far, comes back and sits down right? And then she'll take another 15 or 20 steps and the dog will do the same thing. It'll walk. And it never got the idea that when she stopped, he or she, I'm going to say he, because it's probably a guy. Um, <laughs> he never got the idea. He never looked to his peripheral right and gone, oh, she's stopping. I don't want this collar to keep jerking me in the neck, right? So he, he never quite got it. But what was she doing? She was, she was training him. Now, if I'd been that dog, I would have thought to myself, you pull that, that collar one more time, I'm going to bite your ankle off, right? Okay? <laughs> I'm getting a little tired of this, right? She was training the dog. Nothing unusual about that. I looked out the window, and I watched it for a few seconds. I went, great sermon illustration. Thank you so much, right? <laughs> Didn't give it another thought. What if she had a four-year-old on that leash? What if she was walking across the parking lot and every time she stopped, she said stop and the four-year-old kept going and she put a jerk in that leash, snapped that kid's head, right? That's when you call family services, right? We call that abuse. Why do we call that abuse when we look at that with a dog and go, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Because you train a dog, you teach a child. Why is that? Because a child has an intellect. A child is made in the image of God to, to a greater degree than Fido. I'm sorry for all you pet lovers out there, right? Pets are wonderful. I, we had dogs and cats growing up, loved the dogs. My sister loved the cats. It worked out fine, right? But children, adults, people are different. God has put his fingerprint upon us intellectually. We're created uniquely intellectual. Secondly, we're created uniquely as spiritual beings, Right? So what happens at the very beginning of creation? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God is a spirit. God is not a man or a woman. He is not physical in nature. He is spiritual. You read uh, descriptive terms in the Psalms like the arm of the Lord right? The psalmist is writing poetry. The, the psalmist isn't saying God has an actual arm. He's explaining something about the character of God when he writes poetically like that, right? Okay. And, in, and what we see here is that God is spiritual. And if you're going to have a relationship with a spiritual being, there, there needs to be some kind of spirit within you, right? So you fast forward to the gospels and Jesus is having a conversation with a woman one day and he's talking to her about faith. And she's talking, she's talking theology. She's talking about, you know, where do we worship? Do we worship here? Do we worship there? And Jesus said to her, you need to understand this, that God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The second thing about us that is unique in all of creation is that we are spiritual beings, which means we are immortal. It means that we will live forever, forever. Now, that may be good news or that may be bad news, and we'll get to that in the weeks to come.
But God has put, again, his fingerprint on us to the extent that he has created us in a way that we can relate to him spiritually, that we can not just get our minds around who he is and our relationship with him, but we can experience him from a spiritual perspective. Blaise Pascal, the, the wonderful French mathematician, said this, there is an abyss within man that can only be filled by an infinite, immutable object, which is to say, only by God himself. You are unique and I am unique in the, in the very origin of humanity by the fact that we are both intellectual and we are spiritual. Thirdly, we are also created uniquely relational. Look at how God says this. Let us make man in our image after our likeness, right? There's a, there's a plural term in that passage and God isn't confused. This is the first place in scripture where we get the hint and we begin to be introduced to the theology of the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God is collectively three in one, perfect in unity and, and distinct in personality. They each fill a different role. The Father does something different than the Son, the Son something different than the Spirit, but they are all one. And we're seeing this relationship between the Godhead as perfectly in tune with one another. They're collectively saying, let's do this together. And there's complete 100% agreement. And that is part of also what God has passed on to us to be relational in nature. So later on in Jesus's earthly ministry, Jesus is, is very involved in training up his disciples, but he's always doing it in the context of his relationship with the Father. Over and over and over again, Jesus talks about he's come to earth to do the will of the Father. And then late in his life, right, the most uh, explicit, right before the crucifixion, Jesus begins to talk about sending the Spirit. And we see throughout the Gospels the theology of the Trinity. And then we come to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And he's, and he's going to talk to the Corinthians about why they're not getting along with one another. And he's going to chastise them a little bit. He's going to get after them a little bit because he said, there ought to be better unity within this group of people who claim to be disciples of Jesus. And as he's in the middle of that conversation, he points to the fact that the Trinity has distinct roles, but they're completely unified in one in person. And so he says, there are varieties of of gifts, but the same spirit. There's the Holy Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. When Paul uses the term Lord, it's almost always, always exclusively talking about Jesus, right? The varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. There's the Trinity. Paul is explaining to us again that when we speak of God, we speak of him as three in one. And that shows the relationship between the Godhead, but it also gives us a hint that we're supposed to be relationally connected to one another. I understand that some people are introverts and some people are extroverts. I, I probably know more people than my wife because I'm, I'm more of an extrovert, but, but she has several really close good friends. We were built for a relationship. And within the context of 1 Corinthians, we were built not only for a relationship, but we were built to appreciate one another and be unified together, even though our gifts are different. 
Even though what you, uh, what gifts that God has given you are different than the God, the gifts that God has given me, we celebrate those in one another. We're not in competition with each other. We're not critical of each other because we have different gifts. Rather, we bless God's name because he puts it all together. And we as a group of people are supposed to reflect the perfect unity of the Trinity of God. That's part of our witness for Christ. We're created intellectual, spiritual, and we're also created relational. What a glorious identity. Think about this for a minute. You read in Genesis chapter 1, God created solar systems. He created universes. He created supernovas. You think about our own planet. He, he created the great redwood forest and the unrelenting Sahara Desert. He created vast oceans and polar ice caps. And when he got done with all of that, when he looked at that as creation, he said, that's good. That is good, right? But then we come to the creation of man. And, and man and woman are added to the, to, the, to the list, right? And now God steps back and looks at everything once again through the lens of the apex of his creation, man and woman. And he sees this all together. And he says, now that's very good, right? The origin of humanity is absolutely crucial, because if we do not understand our origin, we will not understand our purpose. But when we understand our origin and we see that God has said what, what most reflects my goodness and my glory on this planet is mankind. It's humanity. I've put my image upon them. That is the origin of humanity. Therefore, what is our purpose? Well, there are lots of ideas about purposes out there, and I'm just throwing a few of them up on the screen for you this morning. There are, there are more philosophies than you could, you know, if we just sat down and tried to name them all, we'd be here till well after lunch. But there are a few that maybe are a little bit more well-known to us than others. Plato should be a name. Uh, if you've already taken ancient history and you haven't heard that name, uh, go back and have some words with your teacher. This is a name you should know, right? Plato the great philosopher said what? The meaning of life is attaining the highest form of knowledge so you can make the best decisions possible. Well, the cynics came along after Plato and they said, yeah, that we, we get that to a certain degree, but happiness really depends on self-sufficiency. So yeah, you gotta have knowledge, but if you don't apply that knowledge and you don't kind of take care of your own house, then you're probably gonna live somewhat of an incomplete life, right? Now fast forward to the, to the, um, uh, the uh, Renaissance and the philosophers that came out of the 17th and 18th centuries, and you get something like nihilism, which says there's just no meaning at all. <laughs> there's no way to make rhyme or reason of this. It's just all kind of, kind of crazy. And then the birth out of that, that didn't feel quite so good, but we didn't want to let anybody outside of us have the last saying, so existentialism, and then eventually secular humanism has been developed, and the notion is that each person creates essence out of their own life. And we've referred to that a little bit in the sermon series. I'm going to come back to one of the more recent clinical psychologists who's fairly, fairly well known around the world, Paul Wong, and he a few years ago proposed a four-component solution to the question on the meaning of life. The four components are purpose, understanding, responsibility, and enjoyment, or pure, P-U-R-E. I'm not going to put all these on the screen, but I'm going to read them to you real quickly. Number one, you need to choose a worthy purpose and a, or a significant life goal. Number two, you need to have sufficient understanding of who you are, what life demands of you, and how you can play a significant role in life. Number three, you and you alone are responsible for deciding what kind of life you want to live. 
and what constitutes a significant it constitutes something that is significant and worthwhile as a life goal. And number four, you will enjoy a deep sense of significance and satisfaction only when you have exercised your responsibility for self-determination and activity, uh, excuse me, and actively pursue a worthy life goal. Now, you read those, on the surface they look okay. And if you're talking to Mother Teresa and you're asking her to apply those to her life, you're okay. You have a conversation with Joseph Stalin, you have a very serious problem on your hands, right? When we leave it up to man to decide on our purpose, eventually it's going to, it's going to blow up in our faces. And eventually a lot, a lot, a lot of people are going to get hurt because part of the image of God has been broken, and we'll come to that in weeks to come. So it's important that if we're going to understand our, we cannot understand our purpose, let me put it that way, we cannot understand our purpose unless we understand our origin. But given our origin, I think we have three observations about the purpose of humanity. The first is simply this, we are to be productive. God said, let us make man our image after our likeness, and what? We're going to put him to work. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the, uh, all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And then again, out of chapter two, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The notion here is that we are the chief stewards. It's our responsibility to care for the planet and use the planet's resources in a wise and godly manner. And so when you look at your life, where are you being productive? Now, your passions are probably a little bit different than the passions of the person sitting right next to you or the person in front of you or the person behind you. But praise God for the passions that lead you to productivity and praise God for the passions that lead me to productivity because it fills our lives and it fills the world and the needs that we have. Some people have a a, a tremendous need to create and they're always asking the question, how can we make something new? Don't we thank God for that? Aren't we thankful that if you want to go to Europe, you don't have to get on a sailing ship and take two months to cross the ocean anymore? But you can get it on a jet and you can have, well, you couldn't have dinner in Paris tonight. It's too late. But you can have breakfast there. If you went to Hawaii, you could have, you could have dinner there tonight. If you left right now on a jet. That's amazing that we have people that love to create. We also have people that love to produce. You figured out how to make it. Now we're going to figure out how to get it to market. We're going to make sure that, that everybody can enjoy it. What about the people who sell? What about the folks who put a value on a product and they help create new jobs and employment because they love to sell and let people know how their lives can be better by using certain things? Some of you are created to be productive in the classroom. And praise God for you that you have been given a gift to teach. Others of you have been given the gift of building. And some of you have signs around Kirkwood. You, you don't hesitate to put your name on that sign and say, if you want to know what kind of builder I am, look at this structure. Praise God that there are builders in the image of God that use their productivity to build. Others of you spend your time and your energy and your effort and your life healing, whether it's emotional and psychological healing or whether it's physical healing. Praise God that there are people who are wired that way. Their productivity leads to breakthroughs in the sciences and in medicine that help people live healthier lives. Some of you need everything to be organized and so you've gone into the field of accounting, right? Now, I don't get that. I don't understand it. And part of the way you're being productive is you're making a lot of the rest of us kind of miserable, okay? But boy, do we need you. 
boy, oh boy, do we need you. I love the fact that we have people at Green Tree Community Church that know how to, and I'm going to say this in the right way, don't misunderstand. They know how to count the money. They know how to care for our budget, right? So every year or so, we have, we have strangers walk in our door. They have suits and ties on. That's how I know they're strangers. And they come in, they've got these big books, and they plop down in our conference room, and they're here to do the audit, right? <laughs> they do the audit. And they talk like that, right? I don't know why. Maybe they were dropped on their head when they were children. But, um, but then they go through all of our books, and Porter spends a week with them, and they're looking through everything. And at the end, they go, well, we have like these five things we think you ought to do. And they're all really teeny tiny little things. Praise God that we have people that account for stuff at Green Tree so that when the strange accounters come in, they go, you guys are pretty good, right? I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I thank God that that's how some of you use your productivity. It's truly phenomenal. Others of you feel a burning urge to represent and to care for those who aren't getting a fair shake. Those who are being treated with bigotry. Those who are, who are being left behind in so many different ways. And you've said, nope, not going to be that way if I can make a difference. And I could go on and on and on. You get the notion. You cannot, we can't remove our productivity from our faith. Because it's how God's wired us. One of the greatest things you can do to hurt a person is to not allow them to exercise the abilities they have to care for themselves and those around them. So the first purpose of humanity we see in Genesis is to be productive. The second is that we live in harmony with God. Look at what God did for Adam. He took him, put him in the Garden of Eden to take care of it. But then he, then he, he treated him like a friend. He said, there's something here that could hurt you and you gotta be careful. You gotta trust me in this. You gotta understand our relationship is a relationship built on trust. You have to believe that I love you. And you can eat anything in this garden except for this one tree. And I'm putting this in the garden so you know you can trust me. As long as you stay away from that, you will live. But if you touch it, it'll kill you. Now you go, well, that doesn't sound very friendly. Well, think about this way. If you knew something was going to hurt a friend of yours, and you knew at 2 o'clock this afternoon they were going to do whatever that activity was or eat whatever that food was that they were allergic to, and you had all the time in the world to connect with them by 2 o'clock this afternoon, and you didn't do that, we wouldn't say you weren't a friend. We would say you were an enemy. We say you're a person that hates and is callous and indifferent towards other people. When God loves us enough to tell us the truth and to invite us into the proper relationship with him, to trust him, we understand that we are actually created to live in harmony with God. And notice that there's nothing about this relationship that's coerced. God doesn't say, I'm going to put a big wall around the tree so you can never get to it. God never takes away Adam's or Eve's ability to reason or think for themselves. And we're going to see next week it kind of goes in a bad direction, right? But here's the place where men and women had complete free will. And God created us to live in harmony with him, with reason and with trust. Which leads me to the third purpose of humanity. Not only be productive, not only to live in harmony with God, but when those things happen and God's present with us and his image rests upon us, we end up living in harmony with one another. I love the description of the first marriage. I, I love the way this is written. And we talked about this when we covered some aspects of human sexuality last, uh, last May, but this doesn't translate well into English, right? So God brings Eve to Adam, and he breaks out literally into a song. This is a song, right? 
Hey, Chip, if you can make this into a song, we'll sing it on Sunday morning. I don't know how, right? This at last is bone. I'm just kidding. We're not gonna, we're not gonna sing this. This at last, because I can see Chip going, I, I'm gonna get Tom on that one. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now you read that in English and go, yeah, that's not bad. But as we mentioned a few months ago, that is filled with passion. That is filled with longing. That is filled with delight, with a sense of cherishing, right? It's as if Adam were saying, Lord, could you leave so the honeymoon could start, right? I won't say any more you understand that, but the picture here is that Adam, being in harmonious relationship with God, allows him to be in a harmonious relationship with his fellow human being. And it always goes that way, friends. When we trust God, when we understand that, that he's our origin and that, that part of his image rests within us and we are at peace with our God, it flows into our relationship with others. And that's why you cannot have this reason for hope conversation without understanding our origin and our purpose. We are Imago Dei. We are image bearers in our minds and in our souls and our relationships. We were created to find our fullest expression of life by living in harmony with our God and living with love towards one another. John Piper said it this way, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. But if you've been listening this morning and statistically, uh, they say that 38% of you have listened from start to finish, right? Now I've got everybody's attention. If you've been, because you're, I'm listening, what are you talking about? Um, except for that boring part in the middle. Um, <laughs> if you've been listening this morning and, and you live in the real world, you're like, Tom, it's, it's not like that. That, that. What you've just described, us always being the, the image bearers of God in a productive way, uh, living in harmony with God, and our fellow man, that just literally isn't the case. And if you're listening, you know what? You're right. Because there was a terrible and horrific choice that was made. And we'll talk about that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the beginning, not only did you create us, but you created us for a relationship with you. You gave us gifts and abilities to be productive and you gave us a world in which we could live and know you and be in friendship with you and experience harmony with one another. Father, as we think about the reason for our hope, we thank you that if we go back to the beginning, we see your intention is not only for your glory, but for the care of your people. So, Father, I pray again this week that you would give us opportunities to talk to folks. As we saw last week, the fields are ready for the harvest. We are praying earnestly that you would send us into the field to talk to others about Jesus. And, Lord, when we get the opportunity, may we remember that you have created us out of your goodness, not of your glory. And you've called us to be in relationship with you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the truth of Scripture, and we pray that you would apply it to our hearts and minds. And we pray in your name. Amen.